In the Newsroom is a production in partnership with Studio Stillwater. Every week, journalists from the Stillwater News Press invite listeners to join us in the newsroom and hear the story behind the stories. Hello, I'm Bo Simmons, editor of the Stillwater News Press. And uh, this week, we had a lot of conversation starters. So we'll be able to continue the conversation to a couple of big ones that sort of landed on us Thursday um, was our state reporter, Janelle Steckline, had a story about uh, critical race theory and an effort. I think it was a, was it a House bill that, let me me look at this. Yeah, House bill that uh, would ban the teaching of critical race theory. What is critical race theory? Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Reading that story, that wasn't very clear, to be honest. At least what kind of, I mean, I kind of got it, but at least. uh, I mean, who who the heck knows? That's part of the problem, right? We are preemptively, you know, prohibiting something that nobody even knows what it is. Yeah, I don't know how you define it, is I guess my point. Like, what is it? You you guys keep talking and I'm going to Google it. (laughs) And I'm going to read out the definition. I, I didn't, I didn't introduce Who's on today, did I? <laughs> no one said, hey, hey, Tanner Holobar's here. Uh, news editor, Michelle Charles, city editor. Thanks for joining us. No, I mean, the the basic understanding would be really this teaching that racism had a foundation in building the country, right? The ideas behind systemic racism and and, you know, things like slavery, you know, right. Jim Do you guys want to hear what Wikipedia yeah, says let's, about let's see it? W- Wikipedia version. Okay, Wikipedia version. Critical race theory is an academic movement made up of civil rights scholars and activists in the United States. Now, I'm going to preface this with I don't know who wrote this Wikipedia entry. Mm-hmm. So if we hear, a, you know, some bias or like some type of slant, you know, we'll maybe figure that out. Uh, okay, so made up of civil rights scholars and activists in the United States who seek to critically examine the law as it intersects with issues of race and to challenge mainstream liberal approaches to racial justice. CRT examines social, cultural, and legal issues as they relate to race and racism. But it, it ties into structural racism is what we're talking about, right? The idea that racism is kind of baked in to the fabric of our institutions, Right, and and this is just, I don't know, an an effort by some House members to to ban its teaching or you know instruction in public schools or or colleges. Right. I mean, basically, it says it argues that social problems are influenced and created more by societal structures and cultural assumptions than by individual and psychological factors. So the idea that this is a structural thing, these are, you know, I I mean, that's really what it is, is that it's kind of baked into our, our, uh, yeah, our systems, whether we're talking educational, legal, government. I I think that's, that's kind of what they're trying to get at. Well, I think uh, Representative West, who's the main author behind it, you know, he brought up uh, cancel culture and, not, um, <laughs> well, I, you can <laughs> right. say what you want about that, but, right. but it, not, and not, um, not making someone feel guilty for something they had nothing to do with was like <laughs> sort of the, right. the point, you know, like he was trying to make, but 
But isn't cancel culture also tied to something you did? I mean, don't you get canceled when you do something or say yeah, something most, offensive? Most often. I. It's it, not like about what your grandpa did. But they've treated it like being told you can't have a different opinion. Right. Which this law kind of tells you you can't have this opinion as an educator. <laughs> True. So. True. And, but, you know, so I think that's what... If we're going to look at this, right. we probably need to look at this from the educator standpoint, you know, not, not, you know, not the knee jerk reaction from, from people on either sides of the aisle or from, you know, that folks, makes sense, you know, from folks who sort of feed on this outrage machine. But, you know, what, what is it, for, what does this mean for an educator? Does it, sure, you know, if you're teaching social studies or, you know, philosophy or you know these sociology these different kind of things you know what what does that mean for you are you now limited in in what you can teach how can they prohibit you if you're say a sociology professor from talking about structural racism i mean i understand they're kind of you know putting everything under the critical race theory thing and and some of my more conservative friends on social media have posted a few things about being um made to feel guilty for being white basically. And they feel like this is a real problem with critical race theory, that their children are somehow going to be indoctrinated with the idea that just who they are is a problem because of their skin color or the, these, the structures of our society, which in a weird way fits very nicely with the critical race theory, right? Um, when you're looking at the structure of something, don't you look at how it impacts everyone? So, I mean, I think it could be, I mean, as you said, a conversation starter as much as anything. I don't know that it, I mean, I'm sure, yes, there are people who are angry. There are people who would use it, you know, who would approach it from a certain perspective, right? And who would be highly critical of um, the, the larger society and probably white people in general. I mean, I know some folks who, you know, are really mad at white liberals and feel really let down by them and feel like they're not the greatest allies that they could be. So, I mean, yeah, it could be an uncomfortable conversation, but I mean, if we're going to get better as a society, wouldn't it be good to be able to look at these issues and how they impact everyone? It's sort of like the idea that, you know, sexism isn't necessarily great for men either, right? I mean, think of all the pressure that have been put on men all these years with the idea that, you know, the little woman stays home and takes care of the house and does these things. What, what kind of pressure does that put on men to go out there and be super manly and make a lot of money so that the wife can stay home and bake cookies and take care of the kids? You know, I mean, any of these inequities, they, they hurt everyone involved in them, I think. That's my personal opinion. So looking at this stuff critically... I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. And what this, what concerns me about this bill is that it bans it at all levels of public education up to college. So at a university, a university professor would be prohibited from including it in the discussion, apparently, as I'm reading this anyway. And if you're starting to limit what people can even be teached, can be teached, that was an amazing word, wasn't it? What people can be taught in a college classroom, then I think that's, that's, prob- that's a problem for me. Well, here's, here's his comments. Uh, he wrote, uh, let's shed light on critical race theory to show it for what it is, a complete deception that will absolutely destroy our nation. 
in this time of cancel culture and virtue signaling, we must have courage. So how many keywords did he work yeah, right. into that sentence? <laughs> but it There's a does, lot of SEO it, going on in that it, sentence. It does also make it seem like just, you know, another attempt to, you know, propel oneself into, and you know, as, as being the hero of, of this other cause. So I don't know. We'll, yeah. It seems like it could get him a lot of, um, you know, a lot of attention in certain media outlets. I'm sure, you know, you could become a hero of, I mean, do you want to become like the, the, the hero and the guardian of like quote unquote white culture? Do, do you want to be that person? I don't know. Uh, I mean, several do. I can't speak for him, but I don't know. What do you think Tanner? <laughs> I don't know. I, I hadn't honestly heard of uh, critical race theory there's a way that you can learn about history and it should be pretty blatant that everybody's not had equality throughout history, you know, just learning about all these different things. So I feel like it's odd that they, I guess, do they push it as a part of their plan or is it just, you can't mention anything around this when you're talking about like, you know, slavery or the Holocaust or something. Well, I think they were, I think it was sort of built in to say, this is not, a ban on educating anyone. You just can't Can you not do it, it in a way that's no. I mean, I no. I mean, I'm sure. I'm, who know? Like, I guess who knows that's what kind of my kind of point is. It seems like you there. still are going to be learning a lot of yeah. the same stuff, regardless of having this like ban on critical race theory. If you're not, maybe you're not going directly down that path. But like, I'm, if you don't call it that, you right. can still talk about. But you're parts still of it. talking about how there's been inequality amongst people and how right. that's kind of and there that's kind of been built upon and there's still a lot of inequalities in, right. in this world today, but maybe you don't call it critical race theory. I guess like that's kind of the thing to me, you still yeah. are still going to be learning it or should still, I guess should, there should still be a way that, right. you know, you just know about it, you know, and people should be able to kind of know too that, you know, yeah, maybe somebody's family, you know, I'm a lot of our family, you know, if you're white in this country, you may have a family member in the past who was involved in the slave trade or something like that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are responsible for that, you know, but I think knowing that that happened in the past is still good for people and knowing that these kind of inequalities went on, I think right. just knowing, being aware of it, I think is good, but you know, you don't want to, I guess I do kind of agree. You don't want to make people feel like it's, you know, something that they had nothing to do with or something that's from a time period that was so far back that, right. you know, they kind of can't really fathom it the same way so well, you and i had a conversation the other night about you know i mean because people really talk about the founding fathers a lot right and we talk about the declaration of independence we talk about the constitution we talk about all of these things and a lot of folks who are uh you know really concerned about these issues like critical race theory are you know they they tend to go back to the constitution but i mean when we look at all these founding documents you know i mean when they talk about all men you know, being created equal. Okay, who were they talking about? They literally meant men. They didn't mean mankind. And they literally meant white men who owned property. Those were the only people who had a say in government at that point. And that's just how it was. And that's honestly, that was the founding principle of of our society here in this country. And we have evolved beyond that. But I mean, I think for people to say that that's not a fact, I mean, I think that shows you that the, the that the foundation, at the very least, even if we have managed to move beyond it in many ways, that the foundation certainly did have those elements in it. Right. And that's kind of the point I was trying to get to is even if you 
don't teach this, it doesn't take away the fact that it didn't happen. There's not examples of it that people can still learn and, you know, that maybe they should right. still know, you know. Um, right. Yeah, I think the next step is, yeah, probably talk to instructors, educators, and right. students, people. I mean, this kind of stuff didn't come up in our intro to mass communications, did it? <laughs> no. Where we... I can I can say for sure that uh, MassCom is is a little bit easier going for those interested in this field of work. the The other big one, probably more of a conversation, because people get so fired up, was the sheriff, our new sheriff, and then the county commission um, declaring by resolution Payne County to be a Second Amendment sanctuary. Yeah, we so, have so many hot button issues this week, don't so we? So if the sanctuary or if the Second Amendment, you know, feels threatened somewhere else, it can come to Oklahoma for safe harbor, right? <laughs> yes, or people with a lot of guns right. can move here. All of a sudden, we're going to be like, you know, one of the most armed, you know, counties in the state, which will be one of the most armed right. states. In the no, the, the background, nation. the background there actually is based on. The introduction from the other side, the, you know, the red flag laws. So it really right. did, this really did start on the, the anti-gun or the gun regulation movement. It, it started with people who wanted to increase uh, red flag laws across the country, which basically means like for Oklahoma, it was introduced as a uh, state question. Right. Right. That didn't even make the petition. Um, yeah. They didn't get enough signatures for a for the petition to become a state question. And it was the idea that we would now put it in judges' hands to determine if someone was a threat. uh, To themselves or others, right? Yeah, like, for instance, in a uh, domestic violence situation, you know, or someone being accused of something, then a judge would decide that they would, you know, remove firearms from their homes and right after that right after this and these some of these laws are stronger in other states than than oklahoma which really doesn't have anything like that but many states uh and i think it really did start with sheriffs all over the place declaring you know their counties uh, sanctuary states saying that they would not enforce that I remember a few years ago, um, my husband and I like to go to northern New Mexico and hang out sometimes. And we were up there and in the news, local newspaper uh, said the sheriff had declared Taos County would be a Second Amendment sanctuary county. And that was probably three, four years ago. So this has been going on for a while. Yeah, this ha- and it happened in several Oklahoma counties, just sheriffs, you know, declaring it. Um, you know, that was even, before, you know, pre-pandemic. Now, now we're getting back to, to all this stuff. What is government overreach? What isn't? You know, it's it feels like we had sort of a, you know, during the pandemic, we had sort of a, a break on all this. And now we're back to the uh, these sort of fights within our legislatures about, right. you know, it was, it seems things, are getting, yeah. things are getting back to normal, right? <laughs> I, mean, I think our, that's really what our, it is. our normal is fighting over. <laughs> Gun regulations, apparently. <laughs> apparently, we're not as worried about yeah. the virus now, and so we're going to go back to fighting about other things. Here's okay. Yeah, here's part of what that resolution said: the county resolution, Payne County will not authorize, approve, nor appropriate the use of any government funds, resources, em- 
employees, agencies, contractors, buildings, or offices for the purpose of enforcing or assisting in gun confiscation or other restrictions that infringe on the right to keep and bear arms by law-abiding citizens as expressed in the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. So basically saying they're not going to put any power behind gun confiscation, but is it something they can do or is it just something they can say? Do any of us even really know? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, I was going to say, how realistic is it that you could actually change the constitution to like abolish an amendment or something, you know, I mean, like, like I'm thinking like, you know, a lot of these things seem like, you know, they're preemptive measures just in case anything ever were to happen. But I guess my, my thinking is, you know, I wonder how realistic it would be to actually have some, you know, tangible, like, okay, yeah, the the constitution was changed. Like, I feel like that is such a process that would be, like, I guess I wonder how that would go about, you know, or at least if that's even possible that it could go that far, you know? I don't think that even there's there's any talk of I, I mean, yeah, there are probably people who are like, oh, they want to repeal the Second Amendment. I'm sure there are people who literally say that, who who probably believe it. I do not believe that there is actually any movement to do that. Now, some things like the assault weapons ban that President Biden is talking about um, or semi-automatic weapons ban or how, however you want to look at it. People call them assault weapons and, and oh, you know, you talk to a gun person. You're going to get, get hammered on this. Yeah. I know. I know you talk to a gun person and you use magazine instead of clip or whatever. And, and you know, they really get worked up if you don't get the terminology right. So I do apologize for this terminology that I am mangling. Okay. But what I am saying is there is a talk about, there's talk about banning certain weapons. Now the question becomes, does that mean that people who already own them are going to have to get rid of them? And we've never had a law that required that, that required the confiscation. It usually deals with future sales. So what you usually do is you have a whole bunch of people running out and stocking up on them right before said legislation is expected to pass. And then the people who really want them have them. And honestly, a lot of people who really want them probably already have them unless they've been saving up. Uh, But I think there's the idea that the county sheriff would not be expected to come take your guns should something like that happen. The thing that jumps out to me is the term law-abiding citizens. And this, is, and this came up in the comment section on our Facebook page about this story. What does that mean in the case of an emergency protective order? If there is an emergency protective order against someone, are you going to prioritize their right to keep a gun over the safety and well-being of the person that a court has judged them to be a threat to? Yeah, and this is the entire reason for these things existing and being in conflict with each other right so yeah it's real weird to say Here, here's something though um you talked about our facebook comments because yes. someone called out the mayor and the mayor responded so i yes. wrote his response down i think they said i bet the mayor is devastated you know considering considering i i think meaning that they believe will joyce's um left wing because of you know his response the to the mask. pandemic <laughs> but yeah. so he, they wrote them because i he i don't think he's weighed in on too many other things i did there was some a resolution that had something to do with uh guns once upon a time they got threatened what was that oh i'm trying to remember what remember it was the, i would the have to do threatened, some research threatened on over it. the phone 
Um, but yeah, I can't remember now. In uh, anyway, they said they wrote. I bet the mayor's devastated, and he wrote, "Devastated? No, I don't want anyone to come take my gun away either. I'm a bit confused though because I don't see how a declaration from the county commissioners or the state law either actually accomplishes that. My right to keep my lawfully owned property isn't a Second Amendment issue. It's a Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment issue." I can't be deprived of property without due process. And Article 1 of the Constitution prohibits ex post facto laws. So even if Congress passed a law restricting the sale of certain firearms, and in parentheses, uh, which this declaration has no effect on, they still can't make it illegal for me to own that firearm if I already had it when it was illegal. Or, or when it was legal, sorry. It says, true... I'm one of those crazy people who believes the Second Amendment, uh, in parentheses, like every other one of the Bill of Rights, in parentheses, can be subject to certain common sense regulations. So I'm one of those crazy people who believes the Second Amendment can be subject to certain common sense regulations. And I suppose that makes me a radical leftist to some of the hardcore gun activists. But this county declaration is nothing more than virtue signaling. It doesn't protect your guns. It just allows politicians to show you how much... They care about your issues. Okay. So, so he makes a constitutional argument. Right. Which, I don't know, maybe has a point. And I think it's interesting to hear someone use the term virtue signaling in the context of someone who would be stereotypically conservative. Because usually that is a phrase that is lobbed at, you know, by conservatives at more liberal people. So I think it's interesting, like kind of flipping that phrase around and using it. But I guess it really is all a form of saying, I'm one of you, right? I, I have the same priorities. I have these concerns. Look at how concerned I am about it. Well, I, I guess uh, I guess wanting to keep and bear arms could be a virtue. I don't know. When, I, yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone wants the government to come take their property away. And I think if people aren't doing anything wrong and they are following the law, that they should have the right to, again, keep their property, use it as they see fit within the law. I, I think that I, I agree with you, Tanner. So much of this is preemptive. And that's what I that's where I think it kind of fits into. It's like the there's like the, the it's a bogeyman, right? I mean, that specter of the government coming and taking your your guns away. It's been used over and over and over again, honestly, but a lot of times by organizations to drive membership up. And, you know, I mean, it's sort of like how in certain news outlets, like I would say, uh, news outlets that lean conservative talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, so much more than news outlets that are seen as leaning liberal. Because she has become a symbol of something for certain people in our country. And I think the, the specter of, you know, seizing your guns and honestly critical race theory as well have become thing, issues that people are very, very concerned about that I don't know that the larger population is really thinking about that much. I think my, my questions probably don't even relate to the issues at hand, more the issue of is this now, are we now governing things that before weren't governed? You know, have we now created government overreach, you know, as like 
that was the fear during the pandemic, right? On the fear on everything in everything else. And now it's right. Now we have more of this. Now we, and especially with, uh, I don't know how many people heard the Biden's address uh, to Congress, which, I mean, he had an expansive plan to add more government, you know, to right <laughs> to the country. So I, so we're getting it from all sides. It seems like, you know, our government is growing. So right. Well, one thing with the with the Second Amer- uh, Amendment sanctuary uh, resolution that was passed as well was that, you know, this is within the context of a state law being signed by Governor Kevin Stitt three days before. So, I mean, you know, we've got multiple levels of our government saying, you know, in advance, we're not going to help you with this, is basically what they're saying. We will not do anything to help you with this when you come for our guns. That's really, in my opinion, what it kind of boils down to. Which is, you know, I mean, it's taking a stand, but I... you're right, Bo. I don't know what that really means. You know what we need the government to do? Fix the roads. Get rid of all these trees. <laughs> right? All these male trees. All these, all these male trees. We're talking about this is how I segue into this other thing, which was pretty smooth, right? It was so smooth. Yeah. I barely noticed it. All of a sudden, um, I'm talking about trees. I don't even know what happened. we're going to want to look into a little bit, right? Because... Right. We, we had another story that came from uh, Joplin, one of our sister papers, which was, uh, no, you're not wrong. Allergies are worse. You know, they've gotten like, who knows, 20% worse. There are more allergens out there. It's, you know, people are more miserable. And Michelle read that this might have to do with city planning in some places, which is wild, which is wild. So tell, yeah, tell your, your spiel here about okay. the okay i i started doing more research on this and i found articles going back to like 2015 talking about this and it was uh presented as environmental sexism but <laughs> basically the idea that um city planners landscape architects whatever decided that female trees created too much mess they drop seed pods they you know they they leave uh debris around basically you know in there because why do all creatures exist it's kind of to reproduce right to perpetuate their species so the female trees are the ones that are dropping the seeds and things like that so they said okay the answer to our problems with all of this stuff is to just plant male trees well what do the male trees do they pump out pollen to pollinate all of these flowers and make these seeds viable so that they can grow new trees so now we've got all these poor lonely male trees pumping out tons and tons of pollen with no female trees to receive them and we are all suffering for it is basically what it comes down to (laughs) that is my story and I believe it. <laughs> I actually believe it because allergies are kicking my butt, y'all. And it, <laughs> it, it does seem worse. And I don't like. I don't. And I don't know if it's an age thing. I don't know what it is, but I, I can say that it seems like just in the last few years, it's just tougher to be outside and not have some kind of you know reaction from it, whether it's your. The eyes or just general fatigue or, you know, the yeah. runny nose and all that stuff. But yeah. Within the last 10 years, I've started having to get steroid shots twice a mm. year. My my general practitioner calls them poor man's allergy shots. 
and in the spring I get one and it kind of gets me through the worst of the early spring season. And in the fall I get one because I am one of those lucky people who has something I'm allergic to every time of the year. So if it's not the tree pollen or the grass pollen, it's ragweed or something like that or cedar. So, no, and yeah. I, I should say that in, it's something we, every now and then we, <clears throat> we take a look at it, but uh, the Payne County Extension Office, um, they do, they do sort of teach these deforestation tips for red cedars, right? Because those are so prevalent. And I know how much and you they, hate red cedars. They do. I mean, they're huge fire hazards, you know, also really bad for allergies, things like that. But, oh yeah. Yeah. But you know, they they want, they want people to remove those from their property. And so that's, sure. a, that's another thing. There are eradication programs that actually yeah. incentivize that. And there's assistance for that because they'll also eat up your pasture land. I mean, they'll just spread and, you know, and they really uh, can, can damage your grazing right. land. Yeah, I want, I want people to know this isn't just me being anti-tree. Well, it is, it is kind of a pest. I mean, it's not really something that people want to spread widely around here. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen a red cedar go up in flames. Those suckers practically explode. I mean, it is crazy if you watch one of those burn. Okay. So yeah. for every... 10 red cedars you chop down, you'll get one assault rifle. <laughs> Segway back to it. In that sounds okay. fair. <laughs> Tanner, what have you been working on? Uh, well, recently I uh, spoke with Elizabeth Chafin, who is a um, local person who recently just wrote her first book, which uh, kind of seems to be a lot of people around here writing, writing, getting into their uh, I remember book, her but... from the murder mysteries, right? Mm -hmm. She used to write, write her own murder mysteries and do those as sort of like a dinner theater kind of thing. Right? So now she's expanded that concept into yeah. a novel? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, she said she had always wanted to write a book. Um, and she basically, she said that everything in her book, it's called um, Dead Man's Swamp. Um, it's now out. And basically she said that uh, she'd always wanted to write a book. And then she she took everything, like everything in that book she, she came up with, you know, every, the plot, everything, all the different, you know, the crazy mystery stuff. She came up with that. And she said um, the, the book itself is the 11th draft. Which, um, which interestingly, she said that, uh, you know, she kept like adding word count, you know, as, as you keep going, keep going and keep going. So, but that really fascinated me because I've always kind of been, you know, at least intrigued by the prospect of writing a book, you know, just kind of the, you know, how long will it take, you know, kind of putting in the time to sit down and, you know, hammer out all the uh, different plot details and, you know, having 11 different versions of it that you finally maybe get to one and it might be totally different than the first one or you might have lost or gained a bunch of stuff along the way. But, you know, but so she was very interesting to talk to um, just the fact that, you know, she kind of was able to take that concept from the murder mysteries and then kind of almost expand on it in terms of maybe a story, you know, instead of maybe having... Um, you know, she was able to go deeper with it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And oh, yeah. That was just very interesting. And uh, I'm actually really looking forward to reading her book just because it, it sounds like a very interesting read. I, um, I looked at the book when it was sitting on your desk and it, it looks super spooky, actually. <laughs> and the, the cover work, I mean, it was kind of almost like a family project, right? Right. Yes. Her brother uh, did the cover, um, which is kind of another cool thing. Uh, just sort of showing how you can really personalize, you know your book, you know, maybe I think a lot of people now can self-publish. It's probably easier to do that now than probably ever before. Just that I'm sure there's a lot of different websites, a lot of different ways that, you know, you can get, you know, several copies of your written work printed and published. So, you know, I just think it's cool that there are, you know, so many people around here that are really uh, able to do that. And it really just kind of shows that, you know, 
it's the kind of thing a lot of people actually do. And you maybe, I mean, I wouldn't really have pegged that there's that many people who are writing books, but you know, I think there, there are more than I think I ever would have realized. That's for sure. Don't have to go far to find a local artist or local author or right. local musician. No, I well, have a wealth of that here. And I think when I was a kid, I always thought that being an author was something like someone had to go, okay, you get to be an author. Now you're allowed to write a book. You know, I don't know why. I just thought it was like this really, really rarefied thing that was just so out of touch uh, or out of reach, rather. You know, I, I really didn't think of it as something like I never sat there as a kid and thought, oh, when I write my book, you know, I just never thought that I would be qualified or, or able to do that. And I'm not saying I'm working on a book right now, although I've always thought about that as well. I think anyone who writes probably thinks right. about that like at you some kinda point. Think, you kind of think, you know, could I, you know take right. all of this and, you know, and, and actually do that, you know, can sure. I, can I, you know, can you have that ability? And it's a little different than writing an essay or writing a, you know, an article or something where right. you, know, you do research, but you might have to, you know, a lot of it might be stuff that you're pulling out of your own brain, you know, stuff that you're coming up with on your own. And that's kind of something that I don't think everybody has, you know, so, but I mean, I was going to say, I, I was kind of the same way growing up, you know, it's just, it seemed like a very exclusive kind of like, wow, like they exactly. wrote a book, you know. Um, you know, so it's inspiring, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To see so many people doing it. Like just, you know, who, you know who an author is? An author is someone who writes a book, you know, who gets to write a book, someone who decides to sit down and write a book, which, you know, means that if you really want to write a book, you should try it. That's what it, that's what it tells me. Yeah. That's a step one. Start writing. Yeah. That's what a writer does. They write, sit down and write. You're a writer. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, I don't know if a lot of people would want to sit down and write, you know, 150,000 words about, you know, the same group of characters or people and trying to keep it interesting without repeating yourself or, 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 or stepping over your, your <laughs> contradicting yourself and the other stuff you had written. So, right. you know, I just think it's very interesting when people are able to actually accomplish that. You know, I just think oh, there's yeah. so much that goes into it, you know, just even the, the actual act of sitting down and writing. And then, you know, I mean, we've all had writer's block, you know, that would be, yeah. that would be a, kind of a bear to deal with, with something like a book where you might have part of a plot and you need to figure out where all this stuff's going to go and end and you might have no idea how to get there. George R.R. So. R. Martin, <laughs> eight years later. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, it's hard enough to get through 1,500 words sometimes and that's a long story for us. 1,500 words would be a lot. So, yeah, I thought it was really cool. I'm looking forward to, I'm, I'm planning on either finding the book or borrowing it from you after you're done reading it because I'm intrigued by it. I looked at it and I thought, that is something I would read. I mean, I like the mysteries and it seems like it's got some spooky elements and it's all moody and, and I think it looks really cool. I'm excited about it. All right. I think we're going to wrap up for the week, right? Yeah. We, we run ourselves out of time and out of topics and that'll do it for us. Thank you for joining us in the newsroom. Look for Studio Stillwater wherever you find your podcasts. Find archived episodes on stwnewspress.com.